Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week we ask, how can we become more effective and productive without becoming miserable automatons? With me to discuss that is Charles Duhigg, who's recently published his book, Smarter, Faster, Better, and Kenneth Cookier here at The Economist, who reviewed the book for us. Now, Charles, your book is filled with a very generous mix of anecdotes from businesses, from Google to Disney, but also from personal lives and the way that people have made themselves more focused. What got you into the subject in the first place? Well, it it came about because I sort of was personally struggling with the basic question at the core of this, which is I felt like I was running faster and faster and faster to get things done and yet falling farther and farther behind. And it occurred to me that this isn't how life is supposed to work, right? We're we're living in this age where we have all these gadgets and devices and, and things are supposed to become more and more utopian. And yet it seems like the more time we spend on email and the more time we are successful, the more it tends to overtake our lives. And and I felt like there were these people who were more productive, who seemed to get more done with less stress and less strife and, and less anxiety. And I wanted to figure out why. So why? Well, it turns out, after talking to researchers and to a lot of those people themselves, that the most productive people, they tend to make slightly different choices than the rest of us. And and in particular, they tend to build systems in their lives that force themselves to think just half an inch deeper about what the right goals are, what their priorities are, how they motivate themselves, how they maintain their focus. There's so much of life now that pushes us to be reactive. The most productive people tend to be ones who try and push back a little bit and who tend to systematize pushing back so that they have habits that allow them to to make the choices that are important to them instead of everyone else. Now, I'm interested that you say systematize because some people may say, well, I recognize that, but I also recognize my limits and I'm someone who needs a lot of stimulus to get tasks done. If I try to think about my future job in five years, I get panicky. I'd rather just do what the boss wants this week or this month. How much of it is character and how much of it can we relearn? I think we can relearn all of it. So so recognizing what we need to be successful is a huge part of this because you're exactly right. There are some people who feel like they get energy from others. There's others who get energy from being alone and contemplative. But the point is that learning what kind of person you are, conducting experiments with your own life and seeing your choices as experiments where you can learn from the data that comes out, this is incredibly important because but most of us... Give me an us, example. What's this like in practice? <laughs> it, it, it all sounds a bit whiffly. What's it like in practice? Well, okay, so here's, here's one of my favorite examples, which is that whenever one of our friends decides to get married, it's very natural for us to say, oh, tell me about, you know, how did you propose? How did you know that it was time to get married? What, what's it like planning the marriage? What we don't do is when one of our friends is getting divorced is say, oh, tell me about the divorce. When did you decide to get divorced? How are you going to go down to the court and get the the papers filed, we we tend to look at these 
positive events and see them as binary outcomes, that it's either a success or a failure, that it's inevitable that we end up with a spouse that we're with. But the truth of the matter is that most of life is a distribution, right? It's the person I married is great for me, but maybe there would have been five people who were a little bit better. Maybe there were 10 people who were a little bit worse. And by asking myself, taking a moment to contemplate Could I have made different decisions? What did I learn from these decisions in terms of what was right and what was wrong? Forcing myself to realize who I actually am, that gives me the tools to be productive. Ken Cookie, there's Charles telling us how to get married. What about application to the workplace? What's leapt out of the book for you that we might put into our working lives? Well, I think that this idea of, in effect, uh, mental models that you would apply, whether it is how you would fly an aircraft or how you would imagine a strategy working out, and to build on what Charles is saying about this Bayesian, in effect, distribution of outcomes, you can actually weigh these possible outcomes. So when you think about the strategy that you're working on, say, or the assignment you're working on in your work, you can imagine that it's going to be successful or not, but it's usually, that's not how it actually turns out. It's degrees of success or degrees of failure. And if you think about the variety of different potential outcomes and weigh the activity that you put into it, into the likelihood of it being more successful or less successful, you'll probably make better decisions. So how would I know if I undertook that experiment, question to both of you, that I'm not simply relying on learned behavior habit, that strange, hard-to-grasp thing that we call character or personality, how would I know that I was able to refine these decisions? Well, I I think two ways. I think the first one is to recognize that the definition of productivity, defining it is an important part of being productive, right? Is forcing people to say, what actually is productive in my own life? Because we know that a, a productive morning on a Wednesday might mean dropping your kids off at school and getting to the office as fast as possible, whereas a productive Friday might mean taking a light, nice walk with them to school and having a long chat. But I think the second part to your question is forcing some type of devices of contemplation into people's lives. You know, it used to be that you could spend a lot of time being bored while you're standing online. Now we have smartphones. And so as a result, you're never bored standing online. But you've lost something by losing that boredom. People who find ways to force themselves to listen to podcasts or to have conversations with colleagues or to write letters to friends, they're forcing contemplation devices into their lives to think a little bit more deeply about what do I actually want to get done instead of what is just life pressing me to do. Ken, when you reviewed the book, where did you think there might be some challenges or some loopholes there for Charles to address? Well, generally, I thought it was, I thought it was excellent because the stories were so compelling and because there were so so many of these tidbits that uh, one could apply. So one could apply, in a sense, all of it. It was all very useful. But the, there was two maybe shortcomings to the book or disappointments, minor ones, of course. The first one was that I didn't see the cohesiveness among these eight different features of being smarter, faster, better. And I thought that was a missed opportunity because clearly there are these some of these cross-connects. Secondly, if it is true that we can become so much more effective by these marginal gains of just getting a, a little bit, thinking a little bit more deeply at every increment, then we're going to see a big societal change in terms of inequalities in society when you have some of these ubermensches who are more quant- you know, better at focusing and motivation and thinking of the world in a Bayesian statistical distributionary way and others who aren't, who haven't read the book. And so what do we do about that? And the book was sadly silent on those two points. I think, that's t- I think both of those are very fair. And I, I think at its core, it, a lot of this comes down to 
how how do we spread the education around these insights, right? We're living through this golden age of understanding the psychology and the neurology of how our brain works. And, and as Ken has written very eloquently, of using big data to find insights that we haven't been able to really see before. And the uneven distribution of that has to do with what groups are availing themselves of this knowledge and which groups are being excluded, not through malice, but simply because as societies, we aren't saying that we need to press this into schools. We need to press this into how we're teaching parents to parent. And and there is a difficult challenge there because we know that there are leaders who have been resistant to taking populations and exposing them to sort of cutting-edge learnings. But I do think that's changing. And I, I will say you know, one of the things that's interesting about the popularity of the types of books that we're writing right now is that I find that they tend to be less popular among, say, the 1% or 2% and much more popular among the the 30%, right? Most of the letters I get are from people who say, I don't read a lot of books, but I read this one and it helped me quit smoking or it helped me spend more time with my kids. And I think this is the, one of the mechanisms of democratization of this knowledge. That's an interesting answer there from Charles Ken. But what I thought reading the book was that perhaps there's this element of inequality that is worrying us about societies. And if the elites get smarter, faster and better, aren't we building into a problem which we already know exists, which governments struggle with all over the developed world, which is how to deal with a big gap between the expectations and the performance of those at the top and those at the bottom? Really what we're talking about can be considered very specialized. How would you actually implement the lessons from Smarter, Faster, Better into school curricula is something that a lot of policy wonks and technocrats are going to have to struggle with. However, I'm optimistic that I think that they will. I think that we, the world is undergoing a performance revolution. It's been quiet and it's been silent, but we are able to measure more things than ever before. We are able to atomize discrete activities that we do to optimize it and improve it. And by doing so, it means that, in effect, Everything is getting better. But that's within elites. Well, you know, not, it, it's going to trickle down and it is because the, the school curriculas are going to adopt these practices too. And I'm also not certain that it is among elites. I mean, I don't think that the elites need a lot of coaching to take time to think about what they want to do with their lives, right? We, we've all gone to these elite university systems that basically indulge you for four years to drink as much wine as you want and think about what you want to do with your future. I actually think that what we're seeing right now with the emergence of popular fiction, not just written, but in television shows and in podcasts, is that we're seeing these ideas trickling down to populations that might not be have educational opportunities that indulge their kind of whimsical fantasies, but that say, we're going to design curriculums to allow you to understand how you can shape your own habits, how to think about governing your own mind. I mean, not just our books, but thinking fast and slow. If you look inside colleges right now, if you look inside high schools, they are using these books that are big think books. And in fact, there's a disparagement by the elite of these books because they're so popular. But the reason they're popular is because they're being embraced by a population that previously didn't have access to the luxury of thinking about themselves quite so quite so much. Full disclosure from both of you, what have you changed about the way you went about your tasks or your life as a, a result of, in Charles's case, researching the book and in Ken's case, reading it? I've actually changed quite a bit. I mean, I, one of the things that that this book really taught me was that I was focusing far too much on being busy and on efficiency and mistaking it for productivity. And that the the only way that I was going to get more control over my life was to decide for myself what I wanted 
productivity to mean, how I worked best, and then to make take steps to systematize that contemplation into my life. So now I spend a lot more so time. Come on, then how? Well, I spend a lot more time talking with my wife about whether we're making the right choices. When I ride the subway in New York every morning, instead of reading anything or looking at my smartphone, I close my eyes. I try and visualize each day and ask myself, like, what do I actually want to get done today? I write my to-do list very differently. These all sound like small. But you small. still write the list. I still write the list, but at the top of the list, I put my biggest aspiration, my biggest goal for that week or that month to remind myself that it's very easy to get trapped in the small minutia. I need to keep, I need to be focused on my goals. I also delete many more emails immediately. <laughs> but the point being that I've tried to force. It's amazing we got you on in the first place. <laughs> uh, Ken, the, the ever more perfectible Kenneth Cookie, what did you learn from this about how you should go about your working week? So the re- the review took three weeks rather than one to do because I was continually missing the deadlines. And I had to actually confess to the editor that I needed to adopt the principles of the book to actually finish it. It did expose to me a lot of shortcomings in the way that I bounce around the world like random Brownian motion and that I needed to be more systemic and systematize my life and use checklists and think about it more strategically, which is I'm in, I'm in the process of doing. Kenneth Cookier and Charles Duhigg, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy, and you can read our review of Smarter, Faster, Better at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.